Welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This week's topic is resource conservation. For humanity's long-term survival and prosperity, we need to be careful about how we manage our resources. How does basic income fit into a plan for resource conservation? How can it help? And also, what challenges does it present? To explore the topic with us, we have seven exciting featured guests, Kate McFarland, Peter Barnes, Thea Schlossberg, Derek Van Gorder, Diane Pagin, Conrad Shaw, and Mike Howard. So when it comes to resource conservation, basic income might seem like it presents somewhat of a dilemma. We're giving people money so they can buy stuff, but the production of stuff for people is the very thing that's using up the resources in the first place. I often like to talk about the idea of the economy having a natural rate of basic income. And if we try to set the basic income below that rate, then economic policies compensate in ways that cause other problems, like some of the problems that we have today. You might run into problems like financial sector instability and a cycle of recessions as we try to use other mechanisms to get money to consumers to kind of compensate. So a question we can ask is, are there other options besides giving people less money that might help us conserve resources? Or are there ways to give people less money that aren't so problematic? Some of us read and one of us wrote an article by Mike Howard in which he puts forward the idea of a carbon cap that installs a ceiling on the total amount of carbon emissions and allows businesses to trade with each other for the right to use carbon. Can we apply something like that to other resources we want to conserve? How do resource taxes or caps affect the natural rate of basic income if we're thinking in those terms? So those are a bunch of questions to kind of get the intellectual juices flowing. The specific question that I want to pose to our guests first is as follows. In what ways is basic income compatible with our goal to reduce the strain of human activity on the environment? Is it easier to conserve resources in a world with or without basic income? And I stole some language from Diane in there in her email that suggested this topic. So we're going to go around and get initial thoughts from each of our featured guests. We're going to start with Kate and then Peter and then Dea. By way of orientation, I will start out by saying that despite my background in the basic income world, I do at present consider myself more of a conservationist. So I will be answering that this question from that perspective and asking how can basic income advocates um, appeal to conservationists like me, in my opinion. Well, I do believe that it's imperative for conservationists to be economically radical. And conservationists could support a basic income as a way to facilitate what I believe are necessary disruptions to the economy. The basic problem is that there are too many humans consuming too much stuff. Um, the most effective action that this society can take, any society can take in the very short term, is just to stop all development, production, extraction, energy use, and so on, that is not necessary to meet basic needs. Now, of course, there'll be dispute over what basic needs are, but now in 2020, we have this amazing precedent of national governments instituting large-scale shutdowns of entire sectors of the economy and doing so almost instantaneously because there was a crisis. But let me tell you, the state of the earth today is a crisis. Um, a report published this year showed that as a global average, wildlife populations have decreased 60% since 1970, so since Earth Day. Um, a report published last year by the UN concluded that as, as many as 1 million species of animals and plants are currently threatened with extinction. And this is a biodiversity crisis of a magnitude 
and not only one that's never been seen in human history, but one that hasn't been seen in the last 65 million years. And the cause is that a mystery. We know that the main driver of these population declines and biodiversity declines is primarily the loss, fragmentation, and degradation of habitat due to human use. Um, at present, three quarters of the land and about two thirds of marine environments have already been significantly altered by human actions. And a study published just this month projected that by 2050, if we don't change our course, 95% of terrestrial environment will be degraded. 95% of land will be degraded by 2050 if we don't change our course. That is a crisis. Now, it would be prudent to shut down as much industrial and commercial activity as possible until people can eventually be rehired in jobs that we really do need to create. So we do need jobs in ecological restoration and rewilding. And we need to change the way we do agriculture and do more small scale organic farming. We need nature-based infrastructure as a response to climate change. We need research and development into technologies that are less material intensive and less energy intensive. We need more education and outreach related to conservation and so on and so forth. There's a lot of work needs to be done. There's positive action that needs to be taken. It can't just to be about stopping in our tracks. And in fact, done correctly, I would definitely support a federal job guarantee that's scientifically informed and ecologically minded, not to kickstart the economy, definitely not because people need jobs to justify their existence, but simply because this work is critical and it's not being done. But at the same time, I don't think that we should underestimate the importance and effectiveness of just stopping a lot of activity that's going on right now. And as we've seen this year, this is an action that can, in principle, be taken essentially instantaneously. Planning good restoration projects would take some time, but shutting down ecologically destructive businesses and business practices you can be accomplished as quickly as shutting down businesses that were deemed detrimental to public health during the COVID crisis. And the problem, this is where we get to basic income, right? The problem is that it's cruel and inhumane to institute such shutdowns if people don't have any means of economic security independent of a job. So basic income could give us a platform on which to destroy our destructive economy, demolish the destructive industries and businesses that exist today, and then rebuild anew. So another limitation of job guarantee, for example, is that it's easily subsumed into the existing rhetoric of the desirability of unlimited growth. And that reflects a mindset and the lack of imagination that we as a society need to move beyond. We need to build a new economic system that allows decreases in production and demand to be embraced as a good thing, not to be avoided. And the prevention of material poverty itself is an important part, but not the only thing. It's also critical that humans be able to find purpose and value in life in something other than earning and consumption. In fact, I think this should be a goal even if there were no ecological crisis. I don't see degrowth as a sacrificial burden. I think it's something that is spiritually desirable independent of its ecological necessity. But plausibly, it's a lot easier for people to think about how to imbue their life with meaning and purpose outside of our current materialistic profit-driven society when they aren't at the same time being constrained by a need to monetize their interests and activities if they wanted to pursue them to earn a living. So I certainly think that a basic income can support conservation goals. I do want to flag that I don't think this is necessarily the case. 
If a basic income is merely used to prop up capitalism, consumerism, and technological fetishism, as is often being advertised in the U.S. today, there's no reason to think that it would do a damn thing to thwart the cataclysmic trends of biodiversity loss and habitat destruction. So maybe this seems like a politically infeasible route to take, but I do also want to say that we mustn't forget that part of the battle here is just to challenge existing societal attitudes and assumptions. So even if what I'm calling for isn't politically feasible, I think that merely making the demand has a significance beyond instituting political reform. We won't get anywhere if cultural mindsets don't change. Great. Thanks, Kate. We will go to Peter and then Dea and then Derek. Well, I agree with everything Kate said, but I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. I'm going to pick up from what Howard said, I guess, before this segment, just introducing himself, saying that he got interested in basic income because he was looking for an alternative to capitalism. So, okay, I think a lot of us are in that same boat. We've been looking for a viable alternative to capitalism. And so as the rest of you have, I'm sure I've been thinking about that on a kind of macro and even a, a meta level. And by meta, I mean, you know, macro would be the whole economy. Meta is the whole human economy in its relationship to the natural economy. So we're multi-system uh, scale. And to the two basic flaws of capitalism, as you all know, are inexorable increases in inequality and destruction of nature. Those are the two biggies. You can throw in financial instability if you want, but I think I'll just focus on the first two because that's what we're talking about. And it's been my hunch for many years that these two tragic flaws, if you will, of our system are linked, not necessarily in an obvious way, but maybe their solution is in some way linked. And so, as I said, I, I wrote 20 years ago, this book called Who Owns the Sky? And it was a kind of a thought experiment. Well, who does own the sky? All right, the sky's commons. We don't really have any uh, rules for dealing with these commons. It's a mess, but maybe we could solve climate change by getting the right property rights, ownership rights around the atmosphere, for example, for starters. So that led to this proposition, which seemed pretty wild-eyed at the time of a sky trust that would own the atmosphere or a nation's piece of the global atmosphere on behalf of future generations and all living persons equally. And if there were such an entity, what would that entity do? Well, that entity would start to cap carbon emissions based on a fiduciary obligation to future generations. So that not short-term profit, but fiduciary obligation to future generations is the bottom line of this entity. So it's cranking down this cap that it has, and we'll get back to that later. What kind of a cap is that, if you want to discuss that? Or just to put it in meta terms, the way we deal with the human economy's relationship with the natural economy, this seemingly insoluble problem because you've got these two systems that don't talk to each other, so there needs to be something done about the relationship between the human economy and the natural economy. In between them is this invisible porous boundary, which we can posit. And we need to put essentially toll gates on that boundary. That's my big metaphor in this book I'm working on now. So having a trust 
in charge of these toll gates, and carbon is a good example of that, would be a model that would lead to both constraint of the macro level of disruption of nature and what you could call a basic income or what I prefer to call dividends from co-inherited wealth. And the two would be linked in a positive way in the sense that the more we restrict the use of nature, the more we crank down those caps and raise the tolls at the toll gates, the more income people will get at this moment. So you create a virtuous link between future generations and living generations, which is a little counter to the oft-cited non-virtuous links. Anyway, I'll leave it there, but to say that the big question is, how do you fix, I think, these two major flaws of capitalism, do it in such a way that you are basically spitting out some kind of guaranteed income for everybody on one side, and on the other side, you're fencing in the market's relationship with nature in such a way that your foremost goal is to protect nature, not to make a profit. Those two go hand in hand. Fantastic. Thanks, Peter. Let's go to Dea and then Derek and then Diane. There's a lot to respond to. I'm going to stick with the question for now. So in what ways is basic income compatible with our goal to conserve resources? And I would kind of say it depends on the implementation, how the basic income is structured, but generally that it can kind of come from both sides. Both the funding mechanisms is one way basic income can help conserve resources in the example of capping dividend, but then also the habits of people in a society with basic income are totally changed, including their consumption habits. So as a documentary filmmaker, I'm in the business of observing people and their behaviors and habits and tendencies and the types of films I've been doing are looking at consumption patterns and environmental impacts, and then basic income. And there's been a whole lot of overlap of those things. So the last film I released was called The Story of Plastic and looked at the cycle of extraction and consumption and disposal of the whole plastics issue, but putting a lot more emphasis on the front end of that, the extraction side of that, and kind of dispelling these myths that it's all about personal behavior and personal decisions and looking at it as much more of a global systemic issue. And so much of what we were dispelling were these industry myths, including the idea that for um, people in developing economies to have the same standard of living as people in more developed or I would say overly developed economies, they had to have access to the same products from the same multinational corporations. And they used this like pro-poor marketing campaign to sell lower value plastic sachets, like these single use plastic items around the world, not because people were asking for them, but because they saw that as a market opportunity. What we heard over and over again, filming with people around the world is that one, it's actually more expensive to buy a month worth of single serving, like say shampoo or something, than to just buy a bottle. Two, the packaging is way less sustainable. In fact, it's not sustainable at all. It's designed to end up in the environment. So first of all, it's more expensive. Second of all, they have to pay for those externalities. So it's actually more expensive on two counts. 
and the petrochemical industry is using this false narrative to say that they're doing this for that sector of human population and reality they're just putting their costs off on them. All that to say, I think on the consumption use side of things, individual people will tend to make choices that are better long-term for them and the environment. I think people who don't know when their next bit of income is going to arrive will spend the least amount of money possible on any needs because of that insecurity. Whereas if they know that they have some amount of financial security, they can invest some of those resources into something they need that will last longer and is likely higher quality, is likely made from materials that are less toxic and produced more responsibly. So in terms of habits, I think the security of a basic income, no doubt, would lead to more forward thinking. Yeah, I like that. Oftentimes, the most wasteful products are also the cheaper products. So that's a problem where the market is pushing for more resource waste. And also people will consume what you produce for them. So if producers are producing products that are polluting or wasting resources, and that's what you get, then that's what you're going to buy. So I think both of those are really good points. Let's go to Derek, and then Diane, and then Conrad. Yeah, so I think it's pretty clear to see how a basic income can fit into a general conservationist picture. If you are advocating for whether that, you know, taxes or other regulations that are intended to sort of push back on parts of the economy that are polluting, usually arguments that get raised against this are sort of concern for economic prosperity. You know, people, you know, the ordinary consumer will maybe suffer because of higher energy costs or some other mechanism that's suggested. Of course, when you have a basic income, you can, like uh, has been proposed, you're sort of making up for that. You're compensating for that. So you're actually sort of ensuring that the ordinary person, the average person is not being harmed by these taxes. And you can tax some individual company or industry. Maybe that reduces the profits of that industry. Maybe it harms that industry, but you're ensuring that to some extent, ordinary people aren't, that harm doesn't sort of trickle down. And I, I, I've seen a lot of people advocate for it in this way, and I think it's a perfectly sensible uh, view and a good argument. There's another possibility, though, for basic income. There's a possibility that basic income can directly affect this problem and help with this problem of resource use and climate crisis that I kind of want to briefly sketch out and compare. And I think that among people who are concerned about the environment, there's a lot of agreement on sort of the climatological models of what causes this problem and, and just the nature of the severity of the problem that we're facing. What I don't think has received enough attention are questions on the economic causes of global pollution, of climate crisis. And by that, I mean to ask what kind of economy produces problems at this scale and what kind of economy would not? Is it necessary that a global economy similar to the one that we have is sort of naturally going to produce these problems? This is one possible model of the problem, right? One model says that humans start built advancing technology. We build a interconnected global market system. And it sort of produces a lot of goods. It gets better at producing more stuff. We sort of, on average, reduce, we increase wealth on average anyway for, for countries. And as a kind of very unfortunate byproduct of this, we're over-consuming the Earth's resources. We're creating a lot of waste products. And this is sort of unfortunate, an unfortunate externality of all of us sort of getting what we want and consuming more goods. And in order to correct for that, we have to rein in the economy with taxes and regulations. And I think, by the way, that that's sort of true to some extent. But there's another possibility, which is that the global economy is not efficient, that the economy we have today is actually fundamentally broken in an important way. In that model, 
the problem might not be that we are, you know, you know, a question we can ask is, are we over consuming the Earth's resources? Is excessive consumption the problem? Or is there another way that we could be actually using resources excessively and inefficiently? And I would say there, there is a way we could do that. We could decide to maximize the work that the economy is doing, the production that's occurring, the effort that goes into production, instead of maximizing the benefit that people get out of it. These are two possible scenarios we could live in, one in which where the average person is just too prosperous and we're all consuming too much, uh, some more than others, but in general, the problem is too much consumption. The other problem is that we're overworking ourselves and the planet to death a little bit. And what's struck me about basic income is just the idea that it's possible to distribute more benefit to people without them engaging in more production, without them engaging in more work. And I think it brings up the possibility that simply by putting in a basic income, in addition to other policies we can pursue, we may actually increase the real efficiency of our economy by what measure? By distributing goods to people, by actually just reducing poverty directly, by channeling the economy towards that goal. When you start measuring from that goal, you start measuring efficiency in that goal, it's something to think about. You start to look at the problem a little bit differently. And I guess just the one case that sticks out of my head that I'll end on is that when the COVID crisis occurred and governments, like Kate has said, started basically shutting off non-essential work, an immediate consequence of this that was very obvious was that global emissions, air pollution, and greenhouse gases dropped by the most dramatic drop that there's really ever been. And the, the general takeaway is that, well, this is sort of what we can look forward to when we create greener jobs and we get greener technology. Another possibility is that we may have too many non-essential jobs to begin with. We're actually trading greater prosperity for people, for human beings. We're actually trading some level of that for more work, more sort of empty production for its own sake. And I guess... I'm starting to think that that might be inevitable. If your basic income is at zero, to some extent, you might inevitably be causing this problem. To what extent are we overemploying not only our people and our labor, but also our other resources, just in the name of keeping everything going, keeping everything busy? And that's certainly something we can look into. Let's go to Diane and then Conrad and then Mike. Wow. So everybody said so many important things and I don't really know uh, how much more I can add, but I think that from my perspective, well, first of all, I want to, maybe I should just go in order. So as I think everybody on the call knows, I'm really favorable to universal basic income, right? And in general, I have a very negative view of uh, federal job guarantees for a lot of reasons that there's no time for here. However, Kate brought up that she sees something particular to solving some of our most terrible problems, right? Which is very clearly our environmental disaster that we've created is definitely an area where it would make sense to target human activity to stop that. So I would say that this is probably the first place I'm going to say that if that were the federal jobs guarantee and it really was like truly toward stopping the destruction of the earth, that and a UBI, to me, that would be a really good situation. So 
That would be my first point. But the point that I think that I want to make is rather than say why I think a UBI would be favorable to helping the environment, I think that I would rather give an example of why the current system is terrible for the environment, right? And I think what I want to say is that someone mentioned ecological destruction, and there's nothing more ecologically destructive to the planet than a social welfare system that is basically predicated on exacting the most movement and the most inefficient movement and the most consumption out of human beings. And that is exactly what we have right now with the current public assistance system, which is basically predicated on making sure that people are engaged in a lot of unpleasant activity that they wouldn't have to be engaged in if they behaved or they met the model of like doing whatever the society thinks that they should do to not be poor. Right. So to give you just a very specific example, every year, everybody is very aware that every year around this time of year, you have turkey giveaways, you have used coat drives and things like that. Well, I can remember and I'd like to share a specific example of a day that I went to Grand Central Terminal in New York City right before Christmas, and they do this every year. They have a big box and a big table and a couple of well-meaning people collecting used coats from the public. A couple of years ago, I walked past in just in time to see a man without a coat stopped at the table. There were three well-meaning people behind the table, and they actually had some kind of procedure for him to, for people to come up and give coats and then whatnot. And they get a tax refund ticket or something, right? So this guy clearly had no coat and he didn't even have a sweater and it was a very cold day. And I walked up just in time to hear him asking the three well-meaning people from this charitable organization that has a very, very big endowment if he could take a coat from the box. And there were coats everywhere. There were a lot of coats and he was one guy and they looked at him and they said, here's a ticket. You need to go to our offices and you go to our offices on Monday, Wednesday or Friday after, you know, between the hours of whatever and whatever. And you give them this ticket and starting next week and you'll be able to pick up a coat. And he goes very logically, but I see a bunch of coats there and it's cold today, can I just take a coat from there and you can, you know, work it out with your ticket, please? And they said no. So in other words, he had to do a, they expected him to do a subway ride, consume gas, consume money, consume effort, you know, be outside even longer without a coat. Maybe they would have a coat up there, maybe they wouldn't. You get my point. This is how the social welfare system that we have works or doesn't work. And all throughout it, you could just track all of the examples of waste of gas, waste of human effort, waste of human tranquility in the service of punishing people. And it is so ridiculous um, and so environmentally and socially destructive that I think that that makes the case that just about any other alternative, especially one as efficient as a UBI, would be an improvement. And then the final point that I want to make is with regard to Michael's two seriously hold our social welfare system to the same carbon cap analysis 
basically our social welfare system would fail any carbon cap requirement. That's an interesting point. And what a story. Wow. That really highlights some of the inefficiencies. Let's go to Conrad and then Mike. Yeah, I think I'd like to walk down my general arguments as they have been and developed over the past few years in leading up to the thing I'm thinking about now. But it's funny, uh, like a lot of these have been touched on already. Dea talked about consumer choices. I always think it's funny that minimalists tend to be better off people. You know, they tout how they have nothing in their apartment and they have like three pairs of jeans that are ethically sourced and things like that. But they had plenty of money to buy those things. If you're living day to day or paycheck to paycheck, that's when you start making decisions like, I can't afford to go out and buy a set of silverware. I'm going to stock up on all the plastic forks and spoons from the Chinese restaurant. You know, you have to save money and you have to be as efficient as possible. And it's really day to day. You can't plan. So UBI allowing people to plan allows people to purchase more ethically and long-term. It allows people to plan. My uh, second one is that UBI empowers activism. It empowers all of these movements. So how many people would have been not just at the Standing Rock protest, but all the other pipeline protests that weren't as well covered? And how many more people can get engaged politically and actively if you take away their basic fear of the consequences of taking some time away from their work and things like that? So in one way, it empowers the movements that we want to make happen. In another way, it also allows these legislative changes we want to make to be done more ethically and more sustainably. So we had the issue of in France, they got the yellow vests in the street, partially because they tried to impose a carbon tax without having any sort of a dividend. So what it ended up being was a very regressive tax on the lower incomes in their society. And so you're basically taking the burden of switching away from fossil fuels and putting it on the people who are the most strapped. Whereas with a carbon tax and dividend, you're flipping that. A UBI funding mechanism takes a regressive tax and makes it progressive by returning the dividends that came percentage-wise from everyone equally, which means that the people on the bottom half of the spectrum or the bottom 70% or whatever, they actually get financial support as well as incentive to switch towards more renewable resources. So if we're asking someone to stop driving their pickup truck to work or use a more gas-efficient car or public transportation, it's hard to ask that if we're actually just costing them more money at the same time. And then talking about the alternative to capitalism thing, I always get frustrated by those, those arguments that sometimes you get into about capitalism versus socialism. And I think like an engineer where it's, it's always some sort of a blend, you have to find a way to regulate and optimize the systems to enhance the strengths they have uh, and avoid the pitfalls. There's a funny quote someone put the other day that I took a little issue with on Facebook. They said, uh, capitalism vans are like a guy waxing exuberantly about the wondrous things fire has done for human civilization while ignoring the fact that his house is burning to the ground. Um, and to me, that's, that's sort of an apt analogy. You know, I, I feel like we are all huddling around the fire of the house burning down, trying to collect the heat for ourselves. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to banish fire. It means we need to learn how to use it and control it and not just let it go unleashed. Um, and then in, in which case it can be a powerful thing. So to me, UBI is a way to do that. And so that sort of brings us to how it can become a very elegant solution to doing capitalism right, I think, and getting rid of the parts of capitalism that are out of control. So when people talk about the jobs guarantee, I very much agree with Kate. These don't need to be different opposing issues. I think a jobs guarantee, um, I would just call it a jobs program focused on the right kind of work, not a jobs guarantee that says we're just going to endlessly create work. I take issue with that. But if it's a jobs program focused on doing the very important work we need to do, then 
hell yes, we should have that as an option. If no private sector firm is going to do it, we should be investing in it. And a UBI can help facilitate that because then it becomes a choice for the people participating in it. The other argument you often get into that's put up against universal basic income for some reason is universal basic services, which always blows my mind. They say, you know, we should guarantee the people the basic needs that they, that they need, which is the same in spirit, but it's assuming that we should just give people the things like food, clothes, electricity, and intuitively that makes sense, but it implies that these things are costless, right? You give people things for free, it implies that they're costless, but we're not accounting for the negative externalities that all that comes with all of these things. So when you put a price signal on something that you say it's essentially free, you're saying use this because it's costless. So not only is it inefficient to like try to give everyone clothes and food when they could just buy it themselves with cash. It's also, if you gave everyone electricity, say you're setting a level maybe for a household that is essentially free. So there's not really any incentive to conserve below that level. But what we should really do, I was open up to this idea by a book I read about solar dividends, which is similar to the other Pergovian taxes, like a carbon tax and dividend, but we can do it with all energy. So what happens if we have a publicly owned energy system, like in your locality or your state or nationwide, it becomes publicly owned electric grid. It's just a utility owned by the government and they set the prices on what electricity costs and they set the prices of carbon higher than renewables, obviously. But most people would kind of stop there. And the, even if they went along with a UBI dividend as what you do with the revenue, they, a lot of them would stop there and say, essentially, we're creating a certain amount of electricity that's free for a household, right? The thing that's actually what you can do is take that model. And because the revenue is going to the citizens who are using the electricity, you can price in the actual price of electricity. If you're paying 11 cents a kilowatt hour right now, that's not representing how damaging it actually is to the economy, the real cost. If it should actually be 40 cents per kilowatt hour, we can raise it to that, even for renewables, because the revenue is going back to the consumers. So what happens in that situation is everyone, instead of an electric bill every month from the electric company, you get an electric bill or check from the government utility. And as the price per kilowatt hour goes up, so does the dividend. So you're essentially making free that same amount of electricity, but you're incentivizing conservation because now it's like 40 cents or 50 cents per kilowatt hour that you get back as an electric check the more you conserve. And 40 or 50 or whatever per kilowatt hour that you feel an extra cost, the more you waste. This is a way to really elegantly save people a lot on their bills, give public ownership of a system, and very dramatically incentivize conservation. I think that's a great idea and it could be applied to other resources similarly. Let's go to Mike. I want to approach the question of the relationship of basic income to resource conservation from a couple of angles. The first is in relationship to carbon pricing and more generally pollution taxes. And then more broadly, if we were trying to fund a genuinely substantial basic income for everybody, which probably couldn't be done just through those kinds of taxes. So on the first point, there's pretty widespread agreement that if we want to bring down greenhouse gas emissions, one essential tool in the toolbox is carbon pricing, whether it's in the form of a cap and you auction permits and then you ratchet the cap down, or whether it's in the form of a carbon tax. In either case, if you're getting the pricing in a way that's really going to bring the emissions down, you're going to generate a huge amount of revenue. And that's a necessary condition, but it's probably not sufficient to solve the climate problem. Nevertheless, it's 
a really important piece of it. And the question is, what do we do with the revenue? A lot of environmentalists want to take the revenue and invest it in alternative energy and other kinds of policies. And I think those investments need to be made, but I don't think we need to use the revenue from the tax for that purpose. And if you only use the revenue for investments, then you face a couple of major problems. First of all, the tax is probably going to get stuck at a low level because the more you raise it, the more you create inequities between low-income households and upper-income households. Lower-income households spend a much higher percentage of their household income on energy. That price is going up. So there's going to be political backlash, you know, like the Yellow Vest movement that was mentioned by Conrad and the, you know, the rebellion against Clinton's very modest gasoline tax. We're talking about pricing that goes way beyond anything that was done in France or the United States. If we're going to be ambitious environmentally, we have to take the equity issue head on and avert the political backlash. So the way to do that is to pair it with a very substantial dividend using 75, 80% at least of the revenue for dividends so that the majority of households will receive a net economic benefit from carbon pricing. That will address the inequity. It will also, in the way that Conrad was just talking about, it will incentivize those lower income households and everybody else to shift away from carbon fuels because they'll have the additional revenue to absorb the cost, but they'll also have the higher prices and be faced with choices. They can insulate their homes and over a five-year period, they can save lots of money. And now they have the revenue with which to do that. And it will also make the whole policy much more politically feasible because now you don't have people who are opposed to the tax. They favor the tax or the cap because it's going to increase their household income. So that's one route to a partial basic income. I think as this tax rises, you could expect the annual dividend to be in the ballpark of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend. The problem is at a certain point, it's going to rise and then it's going to level off. And then as people stop using carbon fuels, it's going to fall. So that's one kind of problem. If you see this as a long-term strategy for basic income, it'll get us into it a decade or two, but then it's going to fall off. And that may raise another kind of problem that people have raised is, are people going to favor continuing to pollute because that's a source of their basic income? So I think the way to deal with that is to see basic income as a very long-term goal. And as the revenue from carbon dividends starts to decline, you start phasing in revenue from other sources. That way people still have their basic income. They're not in favor of pollution. Basic income will then become a normal part of everyday life and not just a pollution dividend. Now, if we look more expansively and we ask ourselves, how would a full basic income let's say in the ballpark of ten or $12,000 per adult per year and half that for children or something like that. How would that relate to environmental conservation? First of all, I think it's probably going to require more than carbon or any sort of combination of other resource taxes. There are some estimates that if you could actually bring into the commons all of the natural and social resources, you might get that level of basic income. But the problem is, how do you claw all that back, which is what's now been privately appropriated? Peter has done work on what he calls a base income. And I estimate, I think it's around five, $6,000 you could get from a, a suite of, of resources like that, but you're not gonna get 10 to $12,000 a year. So suppose we do from income tax and other sources, give everybody a full basic income. We face a problem and that is, 
it's going to be redistributive from relatively wealthy people to relatively poor people. That's going to be the effect on income distribution of a substantial basic income. And you're taking money from people who tend to save more of their income to people who tend to spend more of their income. That is likely to produce a net increase in consumption. One estimate that I saw figured that in the United States, you would see a one to 2% increase in carbon pollution from that transfer of wealth. So that's potentially a problem. Now, I think the appropriate reply to that is that if at least part of the basic income is being funded from pollution taxes, hopefully the dampening of pollution from the carbon pricing will more than outweigh the increase in pollution resulting from increased consumption. In any case, it seems to me kind of obscene to say that we should keep pollution down by keeping people in miserable poverty. There are other ways we need to tackle that problem. Okay, another issue, if we're transferring wealth from wealthy to poor, there will be less inequality. And this means, at least if the, the effect is substantial enough, there will be less need for positional goods. These are the kinds of goods that people need because other people have them. And if other people don't have them or they don't have them at the same degree, then we don't need them. People who don't have them don't need to aspire to that. We all need cell phones now. When I went to Alaska with Carl Weidequist to work on the book, I had to get a cell phone because there were no longer any pay phones. You know, I had a little simple phone. I needed to get a smartphone so that I could actually make a phone call and have somebody pick me up. That's a positional good. And so if we reduce inequality, we'll reduce the need for positional goods that are a significant part of the excess consumption we generate systemically as a society. The other thing is that basic income can facilitate living on lower incomes. And a number of people have mentioned this. I won't really elaborate on it here, but I just want to say that that's not a guaranteed outcome. You can't just give people money and then assume that they're going to become back to the landers. So I think you're going to need, if you want to get the desirable environmental results, you need to pair basic income policy with other kinds of explicitly alternative energy, environmental alternatives things like incentives to use your income to insulate your home, to use less energy in various ways to buy an electric car. If you need a car, you may be able to tie this up with local currencies to incentivize local economies. You may have explicit work sharing policies. I think basic income can encourage work sharing, but if there is explicit work sharing legislation, then the basic income not only facilitates it, it makes it feasible for people. And work time reduction. If you reduce work time, you have a basic income, it makes up for the difference in the income. And we maybe also need to consider maximum income. That also addresses the positional goods issue and also the consumption at a sort of luxury level that's part of our problem. So I think I've touched on the main points I want to make. People have said lots of other things that are interesting to talk about, but I'll stop there for now and we'll get to other things in discussion. Thanks, Mike. Lots of interesting points brought up so far. I'll try to tie some of them together. I'll start with something Mike said, which is, to what extent would giving people a basic income potentially cause more resource use? Because poor people are more likely to spend their money, buy things, then stuff will be produced for them, that kind of thing. One way to look at it is that the economy, just in order to function, it needs a mechanism to get money into the hands of consumers so they can buy stuff. And then the question is, what do we want that mechanism to be? If the way we get people their money is broken and really inefficient, like some people brought up, then what does that mean 
for the amount of resources we use in the normal course of the economy running. And if we replace the mechanism by which we get people money, right? Like basic income is just a way of getting people money. If we replace the mechanism that we currently use to get people money, this perhaps really inefficient, wasteful thing with a basic income, then that could be an efficiency gain right there. And the basic income potentially could be very small or very large. It's not necessarily extra. It's not necessarily on top of what we're doing now. So that was kind of a thought I had based on what Mike said. And then there's also the question of revenue from something like a carbon tax. And to what extent it makes sense to tie the amount of the basic income to the amount of revenue from a carbon tax. So we had a discussion on data dividends a while ago with a similar kind of thing where companies pay fees to use your data and then the money is kind of redistributed in the form of a basic income. And I think it's got the same kind of issue because we want privacy, we want data security, and we want resource conservation. There might be certain taxes or fees or maybe just restrictions that we want to put in place to ensure that we get what we want on that end. And that might not have anything to do with the amount of consumer spending that's optimal for the economy, both taking into account resource conservation and taking into account you know, what allows us to reach our potential. So when people ask me what to do with the revenue from a tax like a carbon tax or carbon fee or something like that, I would say, well, just throw it in a bonfire, burn it. Obviously that's bad for the environment, but metaphorically do that. And then you can separately ask the question, what's the optimal income stream for consumers in the economy so that they can buy what the economy can produce for them. Some of the ways that we are getting people money now is that we're stimulating the financial sector and we're creating jobs, some of it very inefficient, unnecessary jobs, perhaps. And then also like what Diane brought up with the safety net programs, the welfare programs, these are all very inefficient ways of giving people access to things, right? That are wasteful of resources. And a basic income is an alternative to that. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that causes more all the time. In fact, since it's an income that goes to everyone evenly, we don't have to do this really inefficient thing where we uh, overstimulate the economy and overconsume resources as a way of getting enough income to leak out the sides to as many people as possible. Like maybe some poor people get some income, but then some rich people are wasting a ton of resources. By distributing it evenly, you get a lot more efficient distribution of income, a lot more efficient distribution of consumption, both of the products that the economy makes and potentially the resources that the economy uses because we're not trying to keep the economy going as a way of pushing income to people or something like that. We're only using it to produce things that are actually useful for people. So I also wanted to bring up, Kate brought up, you know, and a lot of people brought up that we're in a climate crisis right now. So this is super important right now, but it's also true that there's not really any universe in which we want to be wasting resources. Crisis or no crisis, we want to use resources efficiently. That's the smart, healthy thing to do. So I think resource conservation is an important discussion to have regardless of how big you think the crisis Crises. And I think the crisis is huge, but this is an important conversation anyway, because we want to be efficient. We don't want to waste people's time and we don't want to waste other resources either. So a question we can ask is, is consumption the same thing as resource use? And I think the answer is very much no. Like consumption in terms of economic consumption, you like Derek was saying, you're receiving benefit from the economy. But in terms of the resources that go into producing that benefit, like Dea brought up this example of the shampoo, you could have the same amount of consumption and it could use resources a lot more efficiently. One big plastic bottle instead of a lot of little tiny plastic bottles, stuff like that. But there's stuff like that all around, uh, not to mention with labor, you know, keeping people employed, creating jobs. That's a resource too. Labor is a resource. Do we really want to bring the economy to full employment? Do we want to keep everyone needlessly busy? I think the answer to that is no as well. 
So Peter was talking about the human economy and then the, the natural economy. Uh, and you know, a question we can ask is, how do we get these two things aligned with each other? And I think that's what he was kind of getting at before. And I think the idea is that humans will always respond to whatever the incentives are, whatever the prices are, humans are going to do what they do. So the idea is to create the incentives in such a way or to set the parameters for normal human interaction sets that the thing that people want to do is compatible with the thing that's good for the environment. So if you are instituting Conrad's plan where you have a, a price on electricity or a negative price on electricity, if you're below a certain amount, then that creates an incentive and that gets people's own self-interest aligned with what's good for the environment. So that's what we're doing when we're designing economic policy uh, or when we're designing environmental policy. We're trying to get people to naturally want to do the thing that is compatible with conserving resources and being good for the environment. Another question we can ask regarding Conrad's plan, I think it's a really clever idea, but a question we can ask is, do we need a specific dividend for a specific resource? Or can we just give everyone a basic income and have the resources be positively priced? So in that sense, you know, you're still giving everyone all their money and the less they spend, the more money they save, the more they get to keep, but there is a positive price on electricity. So it's kind of like the difference between thinking about a basic income on its own or thinking about a basic income in the form of a negative income tax or something like that. And just one final thought before I get to people is that there's two ways to look at how basic income, there's more than two, but there's there's two interesting ways to look at how basic income interacts with resource conservation. And one is, would basic income help us conserve resources just by instituting a basic income? And that's the argument about, well, it's a more efficient way to get people money and allocate resources in the economy. And then another question we can ask kind of one step beyond that is that once we're in a world that already has a basic income and we want to conserve resources, we want to do more to conserve resources than we're already doing, what are some steps we can take? We've already done the basic income. We've become more efficient in that way. What else would we want to do in addition to that to conserve resources? Go ahead, Diane. So there's a lot there, but I wanted to just uh, point out that there's a, it, there's a, as part of um, the whole conversation, that there's, it's really, really interesting to see how um, certain environmentally desirable behaviors are, um, are praised and encouraged amongst the wealthy, whereas they're, uh, whereas People who are low income or um, using safety net programs are not really encouraged to do those behaviors. So when I um, when I was a social worker in uh, in rural upstate New York, one of the really interesting things that I observed was, um, for example, I was in Delaware County, New York, which um, has a poverty rate that's a little higher than the average. Um, it's about 15, it's about 16% of 45,000 people. So you got to figure like 7,000 people are living below the poverty line if you want to accept that as a measure, right? And of, that, of those people, um, you know, maybe, maybe uh, let's say 4,000 of them are, are adults that are expected to work or participate in work programs. So what was really, really interesting working in social services there was that um, there were a lot of people who had, um, who had land 
most people had land of some kind, whether they rented or owned, they had land around there, wherever they live, that they could plant in, whether they owned it or not. They could work the land, they could grow a small garden, etc. Rich, rich people, particularly transplants from southern New York and New York City with a lot of disposable income, were constantly praised for cultivating beautiful gardens, starting businesses that were in agriculture, cottage industries, and so forth, right? Poor people in those same counties that were attached to the public assistance system were forced to do workfare. Even though, even though the workfare options, none of the workfare options included um, anything that was environmentally that would have been considered to be like environmentally enriching in some way. So like nobody was allowed to, instead of going and shredding paper in some office or, you know, sitting around a welfare office to satisfy the workfare requirement, none of those people were allowed to just like stay home and cultivate, you know, a, a small garden to enhance the nutrition in their own household or work at a community garden, like none of that was acceptable. And yet the people that had higher incomes were praised for beekeeping, you know, making honey, making beer, you know, just growing their own food, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so in terms of like wasted human resources to repair the planet, um, if you consider that just in a small county of 45,000 people, you had like, you had basically like, you know, seven or 8,000 people who were actively prevented from finding better solutions or using their time, their land, their property in a more environmentally sustainable way. Um, you can see right there what is wrong because we're we're not using our human resources as i think like you know kate kind of said kind of in the beginning about the jobs and you know targeting people's work to be productive and conrad said something similar as well you know if we're gonna put people if we're gonna encourage activities like why are there why are there these you know contradictory you know ideas of what is productive labor how come when i'm well off and i have you know a country home in delaware county and i make stuff how come i'm great and i'm like to be emulated and stuff but if i'm a poor person i have to go shred paper or you're not going to give me 200 dollars a month i mean it's just it's bonkers and I just want to point out that like we're not using our human resources to save the planet and we're like we seem to if we don't stop this, you know, th this kind of, you know, bonkers, um, disparate, you know, ideas of like who, who should be doing what and we don't let people choose how to help their families and help the planet and stuff, we're just never gonna be able to turn the environment around because we're never gonna free up enough people under the current system 
to be able to be helpful. Um, and, and, you know, we need, we need all of the millions of people in this country who are very low income. We need them. The idea that we can fix this with just like, a, you know, a few million like well off, you know, cottage industry farmers who are doing it on a lark is absurd. Uh, we need to change it. And a UBI is going to be a, a really essential element of, of changing it. Yeah, I think that's right. There's this undercurrent of, you know, no matter what our values are, no matter what we say our values are, there's this undercurrent of, well, the main thing that people need to do is earn money and support themselves by whatever means. And we're not taking into account that by forcing people to earn their money, we're actually being incredibly wasteful of resources. And Dea said in the chat, she said, how much gardening and composting do those people need to do to make up for the additional resources involved in their second home in the first place? Uh, which I think is an excellent <laughs> point as well. Uh, let's go to Derek. Uh, yeah, that was that was great. And I really liked the challenges and problems that Mike outlined. And I guess just really briefly, I, I think I want to just emphasize from, pick out from what Alex said, that I think the really important um, uh, points that might be really helpful as answer to some of those problems is that, you know, one, this, like you've been stressing, this distinction between consumption and resource use. And if you draw that distinction, you can start to separate between, you know, well, the output of the economy, which is what basic income is, just people getting goods, um, and and then the the intake of resources and so that's really the the work that gets done businesses jobs and you know it, it's, it's worth reflecting whether or not we're actually by prioritizing employment um, we may be ramping up the the natural resources that go in on the intake end instead of trying to reduce those why we why we boost the output right so that might be an answer to to Mike's concern which I think is very valid that like the the answer to ecological conservation can't be, more austerity for the poor. It just doesn't, we intuitively, we recognize that can't quite be right. And just the second point um, is this very important point about, you know, what you dividend, you incentivize, what you tax, you disincentivize. And I think there's a lot of value about talking about basic income or dividends and tax policy in the context, in a general context of how we're treating the environment. But there is a, a frequent temptation to, to link those two things, like formally with the policy so that the the taxes providing the revenue of the dividend. And I, I, think, I think that gets into a lot of the problems that, that maybe Mike and Alex were talking about, that, that now you know, in the future, if, if we actually are successful in removing the stuff that we don't want from our economy, now the basic income is lower. So either we're making people poor for no reason, or we are, we're actually creating a political incentive for people to, to just do more of the wasteful things. Um, so, so that would be an argument for really you know, talking about them in context, but not linking them quantitatively, linking them in a, in a larger policy framework and asking, okay, what amount of carbon tax or carbon cap is ideal for the outcomes we want to see? And what amount of basic income is ideal and sustainable? Yeah, it reminds me of, I guess, a little over a year ago, I went down to New York City to talk to Derek. And the question came up, we were talking about how 
certain taxes might be able to increase the amount of basic income we could afford, and then other taxes might actually decrease the level of basic income we could afford. And the question came up, well, what's an example of a tax that would decrease the level of basic income we could afford? And the one we came up with was a carbon tax, because what you're doing is you're putting a tax on a certain resource. That means there are fewer resources that can go into production, and that means there's less potential output for consumers to buy. So what ultimately constrains the basic income is how much stuff is there for people to buy. So the more you tax resources, the more you conserve resources, the lower the basic income is going to have to be. Let's go to Mike, since we were just talking about Mike. Go ahead, Mike. I just want to go back and amplify a little bit something that Kate said earlier about degrowth. It struck me a few years ago that there's at least a tension in the basic income movement between advocates who see basic income as a way of keeping the economy booming and growing and making sure everybody has a piece of it. Uh, but from a resource conservation perspective, economic growth, uh, at least up until now, has been a big part of the problem. So is there a way to reconcile the perspective on basic income that sees it as a a way of boosting and stimulating the economy on the one hand, and the view that sees it as a way of enabling people to kind of power down and consume fewer resources. Um, and uh, one effort is what's sometimes referred to as green growth. Uh, the economy continues to grow, but you decouple it from the carbon emissions. Um, so you're, you're growing dollars, but you're decreasing emissions and other kinds of pollution. The problem is that there has been uh, little, if any, absolute decoupling. And even relative decoupling has been, at best, extremely modest. And people who study consumption behavior find that the more people's income goes up, the more their environmental footprint goes up. Um, and the time within which we have, we have a carbon budget that we have to stay within if we're going to keep global temperature rise below two degrees or 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So we're rapidly consuming that budget. So we have less and less time with a smaller and smaller budget. Is it going to be possible to continue um, to grow the economy um, and at the same time to stay within that budget? Or al alternatively, is it going to be necessary to have what some people call managed degrowth or planned degrowth. Um, and I, I don't have a, a clear answer to that, but I, from what I've been reading, I lean toward the degrowth, although I recognize how difficult a political sell that is. Um, but I'm here just to explore the ideas and I don't have to run for office. Um, yeah. Another dimension of this is Thomas Piketty's uh, study of growth and inequality and his finding that as economies slow down and you know mature capitalist economies the rate of growth has been slowing uh, for other reasons uh, as, the, as the growth rate slows the inequality soars so we have built-in tendencies toward inequality um, and if we try to slow down the economy for environmental reasons we're going to push toward that impetus toward inequality. And interestingly, basic income may be relevant to both of those problems because if we try to increase the 
basic income to as high a level as we can. We're redistributing wealth. We're, we're increasing tax rates on the rich. We're lowering the inequality. We're reducing the positional goods. Um, and at the same time, if part of the funding, I, I agree it shouldn't all be tied just to pollution taxes, but if part of the funding that's feeding into this is pollution taxes, we're also increasing the incentives to stop, stop polluting. And we enable people to live well on less. Um, and we, don't, uh, we are not relying on a growing economy to generate employment, which has been the standard model for dealing with poverty and inequality since the end of the Second World War. You keep the economy growing and everything trickles down. And that's, that's been faltering for reasons independent of, in, of the environment. It's time we recognize that we need to think of another way to deal with inequality. And it has more to do with redistribution. And one last thing I would say, and this relates to um, you know, alternative systems. Um, I agree with Conrad that you, you, know, you don't want to get stuck with sort of fixed stereotypes of what's capitalism and what's socialism. My own, uh, what I've advocated is what I've called market socialism. So you have market economies that distribute um, goods and services efficiently, but you have some important elements of social ownership. And I think one way to build a base for basic income that is very solid and does not depend on continual taxation of incomes which will be resisted by the people earning those incomes who are very powerful politically, um, is to have a very broad base of ownership, whether in the form of worker-owned cooperatives or citizen shares in the wealth of the economy, what John Rawls has called property-owning democracy. Um, then the income comes to people because they own it. Um, and that's a, another way to fund basic, another source of funding for basic income that's regular, that's not gonna go down as, as the, you know, the pollution that you're taxing declines, um, but it will be steadily there in a, in a, a robust, sustainable economy. And I think that's another source of framing for basic income as well. If you just say, you know, uh, Andrew Yang used to used to do this, but he used to say, you know, we're all owners of the economy, and therefore um, that's why that's why you're getting this. So you can you can frame um, even if the basic income is not um, mechanically tied to anything in particular, it's just something everyone gets. Um, you can still frame that as a form of ownership, as a form, you know, you get this passive income based on your shared ownership of the whole economy because you're you're a person, right? Um, so that so it's not necessarily um, yeah, it can be, it doesn't necessarily need to be a source of funding. It can be just a source of, of, of framing in that way. Um, and I like what you said about full employment, how we kind of uh, conventionally rely on this mechanism of people getting their money through jobs, growth, creating jobs in kind of this, this cycle. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that way, uh, especially in a basic income world. And if we think of labor as a resource, if we think of people's time as a scarce resource, then full employment is like going into a forest and saying, hey, look at all these trees. Let's, cho let's chop them all down and figure out what to do with them, right? Uh, we, we have this resource. We want to 
use use it completely and then figure out what to do with it. And then that's that's kind of what um, what full employment policies are like. And that's what a job guarantee is like too. You're saying, hey, people have this available time. We want to employ them in some way. Now that's not to say, you know, Kate was saying earlier that there are plenty of useful jobs that maybe the government should be hiring people to do. But I think that's very different from a job guarantee. I think if there's there's jobs that need doing, you recognize that employing people is a cost that uses resources and it and it takes up people's time. Uh, and there's an opportunity cost how how else would they have spent been spending their time if you hadn't employed them that kind of thing so you recognize the cost and you recognize the benefit of the product of the labor and that might be uh doing important things for the environment that kind of thing and then you say is it worth it to create these jobs is it worth it to pull people away from what they otherwise would have been doing so uh conrad's had his hand up for a little while and we've been talking about his plan so let's get to conrad go ahead conrad I want to touch on a couple of things I heard as well before I, I get to your question about that. Um, talk, talking about degrowth, I'm generally in the category of degrowth as uh, supporting that as like as growth is generally understood and um, consumption and productivity are generally understood. But I would like to see if we could find some way to redefine those things, growth and productivity, in terms of they don't just have to mean uh, physical resource consumption, uh, the, the kind of growth that I would be acceptable or that would be acceptable to me would be the growth in services and human connection and things like that, that, you know, they take up our time and our, our, our love and our energy, but it's not about extracting physical things from the environment. And if, if our economy was, had a lot more counseling services and puppy training services and things like that, that's, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me. Um, the question is how, how do we how do we steer in the direction where it's not about more electric use and more physical goods? Um, I wanted to point out to something Diane said about the uh, the gardeners that are rich getting all this praise. Just a funny inside story is in our in our bootstraps trial, we had a family that was about to lose their house and then they got a basic income. And the thing they did with it is they created a home garden so they could be sustainable and make little income with it. So one of the things that's beautiful about it is, is that sort of opens up those opportunities to, you know, us normal folks to, to make those choices, um, whether or not it comes with praise. Um, and then getting back to the, the question of, do we need specific targeted UBI things like a energy tax, a carbon tax and things like that? Um, for one thing I want to answer, no one should think of a carbon tax as the only funding mechanism for UBI. We should always see it as obsoleting itself eventually. Um, not that it's a bad thing to do, but we should never, it should, ne should never be the bulk of what funds a UBI. I instead, uh, because it does obsolete itself. And that's why I like even more the other Pogovian style taxes on like use of the commons. Um, I guess maybe that's not Pagovian, but taxes on use of the commons like renewable energy and stuff. If we can get a dividend from renewable energy, that's a renewable dividend, right? Or in, in general, dividend from ownership of the commons, uh, like land value tax and things like that. That's a renewable dividend. It's acknowledging a resource um, that that we, we reap money from maintaining. Um, but I see... In answer to Alex's question, I see this more strategically. I see 
that, you know, if we jump ahead to the Star Trek future, then yeah, maybe we have a society where we have one sort of all encompassing UBI that factors in all of these resources because the because the different things, uh, resources and mechanisms that should be owned publicly already are, right? But that's not where we're at. We need to get to that place through steps, probably. Um, so I see things like carbon tax and dividend and energy tax and dividend as an incredible foot in the door strategically. One, because they're very politically saleable, you know, saying that we can just own this, we can just buy it out and own it. That's something I think we can convince people of, especially when they're going to be getting a check from it. Um, and very importantly, it creates that structure. It creates that framework. I see UBI as kind of like a virus. Once you've got it, you're never getting rid of it, you know? So if we get it in place, I, I don't see it like fizzling out when, you know, when we move off of fossil fuels, I see we're, I see us very quickly looking for other ways to fund it because it works, you know, at give directly was laughed off the stages of, you know, summits and things when they were trying to raise money for their platform 10, 15 years ago. And now every single foreign aid charity has to benchmark themselves against what Give Directly would do with that same money. I think government programs will be the exact same. If you're going to try to do some sort of welfare or a program, the question from the citizens will be, why don't you just put it in my check? You convince me that it's not better. Um, so I think it'll grow and it'll stay once we have it. And what's more, having any level of UBI, as long as it's like not a joke, not like $10 a year or something, but at like a, you know, $1,000 a year, whatever the carbon tax would be or an energy dividend, it's significant and it's coming in and you start to feel it and you start to understand it. And you have to do the legwork to create the, the structure for it. So you'll have the process of getting everyone banked, which is already in itself a win. And then we have a system where if everyone's got a bank account that their UBI can go into, the second we have a pandemic or a disaster, we have a place to direct those stimulus checks on day one without trying to figure out how to get $1,200 to 250 million different people with different situations. So we've got the structure in place, we've got the strategy in place. And I do believe that once we get any level of well-conceived UBI, it will grow from there. I think that's probably right. There's kind of a lot of different strategies for getting our foot in the door with UBI. And then once it's there and people realize that it's working, it's going to be something that's very hard to get rid of because you're fixing this fundamental flaw in how we get people our money and people won't want to go back to it being broken again. So I, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, obviously um, targeted taxes make sense for resource use, uh, resource conservation, because different resources, you know, maybe there are some resources where we could be using more of them and it would be fine. And there are other resources that we really want to conserve, like carbon emissions and that kind of thing. Um, so certainly you want to be pretty specific there. Um, and in terms of doing targeted dividends based on a particular resource, um, that might be a way to get the foot in the door with basic income. But I think at the end of the day, you know, once we get to that kind of end game of, of an optimal basic income or something like that, um, you really wouldn't need to target the basic income itself. You'd target the taxes, and then that would naturally conserve the resources, and it would bring the basic income to the level that, that activates uh, whatever resources are, are kind of still available for us. Um, and in terms, I want to speak to degrowth for a second, um, which is that 
I don't know if we need degrowth. Uh, I find Kate's arguments fairly compelling. So uh, maybe we do need degrowth. Um, but I would, you know, like in my kind of ideal how things play out, I would say, well, let's get a basic income to, you know, obviously this is maybe not the politically optimal route uh, because it might take some time, but let's get the basic income to kind of the optimal level for the economy. And then, you know, you've removed a lot of the inefficiencies in terms of how we get people our money and keeping people busy, keeping, uh, you know, using resources unnecessarily, and then take a look around and say, uh, is there more resource conservation we need to do on top of this? Uh, and then if there is, then maybe you need to start increasing carbon taxes, increase um, taxes on, on other resources. and and then um, get us down to a level that's sustainable. But, you know, we don't know what's sustainable uh, in terms, we can't decide ahead of time what policies exactly are going to lead us to a sustainable economy or sustainable society. Uh, we have to kind of feel that out. We have to, you know, gradually increase taxes and make tweaks and adjustments. Uh, and then we'll get there uh, eventually, you know, if everything goes, if everything goes well, which, which I hope it will. Um, so we are getting close to the end, but I want to get to at least one, um, one comment from a non-featured guest. So I will play favorites and call on my wife, Bethany. Go ahead, Bethany. Thanks, Alex. Uh, appreciate the favoritism. Um, so a couple of quick things. One uh, thought I had on Diane's story was just that a lot of sort of things that might look like they're helpful for the environment really aren't that effective and they might be more like just a costly signal of free time. So that could kind of explain why like a wealthy person gets praised because underlying it, they're kind of just showing off that they like have this extra time and they're like using it industriously, but a poorer person is not able to signal that they have like extra time on top of their job time or, or whatever. Um, so, so just different thoughts on sort of how ineffective some of the, the efforts can be and sort of why you would see that difference. Um, I also just wanted to bring up like a couple of concrete things. A lot of people have alluded to how wasteful uh, jobs are, but I, I think, you know, heating the, the buildings, commuting, all of these things definitely take up a lot of resources. And just as a personal anecdote, like we, um, Alex and I have stayed with his mom for a bit during the pandemic. And like, it's very easy for the three of us to share just one car and really not even use it that often when nobody's commuting to uh, a job. But if we were doing that, we might need three cars and be driving it all the time. So just like as a concrete example, like there's real resource use in, in people having to get different kinds of places to jobs and so on, let alone like producing paper and computers for the jobs and, and whatever else. Um, and then my, my bigger picture question has been touched on a little bit already in the last few comments, but, you know, Alex, you were saying that you don't necessarily need the dividend uh, or like any sort of basic income to be tied to like a tax on carbon, for example. But it seemed like uh, one of the key arguments for that structure was just uh, practical, like to get people behind a tax that is otherwise going to cost them money. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that point. And obviously people have also raised the issue of like, you have to hopefully phase it out eventually and things like that. But but not thinking of it as like a way to fund the basic income per se, but just as a way to get people behind a tax. Um, what do you think of that in terms of tying the tax to money that people get? You or, or others too. Maybe. I'm notoriously not that interested in talking about political reality. But that, of course, is an important an important topic. Um, yeah, I mean, tricking people into thinking that, uh, that it funds the basic income and getting them to support it uh, because of that, um, certainly, um, you know, that might be a good, a good political strategy. I, I, my feeling is that if we had a basic income at a high enough level, um, that it was kind of the default way that people got their money and we didn't have poverty or anything like that anymore. Um, then you just say to people, hey, we're killing the planet. Um, we're going to make this resource more expensive. And you're not going to run into this problem where 
you have to worry that you're screwing people over. You know, it's an extra cost that everybody pays who uses this resource. And that's it. And there aren't people who, you know, that'll put them in a situation where they, they don't have enough food or, or can't do the things they need to do to survive or something like that. Uh, and that feels fine to me. It doesn't feel, I don't feel like we need to go through this whole like, oh, it's the same money that we collected from the taxes now going out to people through a dividend. Therefore, the tax is good. It's a happy thing because um, it gives you money or something like that. I, 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 don't, I don't really buy that as kind of like a any kind of deep uh, uh, political justification, but you know, may maybe it could be argued that 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 uh, could be uh, could be a useful strategy. Um, in terms of jobs taking up resources, one of my favorite things to say is that jobs are bad for the environment. So I'm all for uh, not employing people unnecessarily. So we are getting to the end. Um, sorry, I didn't get to uh, some other people's comments, but all the featured guests will have an opportunity to give final thoughts. Uh, unfortunately, Peter dropped uh, at some point. So we will start by going to Kate, then Dea, then Derek. Go ahead, Kate. Well, let me say it's great to hear a panel of basic income advocates talking about environmental, environmental issues for once. And it's been very illuminating to hear all of your experiences and all of your different but largely complementary takes on the topic. Um, I've always, I will say that I've, while I've always found basic income attractive, especially as a motivating utopian ideal, um, as someone whose crippling anxiety and sleep loss is caused primarily by worries about ecological destruction, I have often felt largely alienated from the basic income movement, especially the contemporary basic income movement in America after you all threw your weight behind a presidential candidate who not only called for geoengineering, but also adopted the campaign slogan, humanity first, which is probably the most anti-environmentalist campaign slogan since drain the swamp. Um, that's the thing that people say when they oppose conservation efforts. You know, let's develop this land, the hell with protecting endangered species and unique ecosystems, humanity first. Um, it doesn't resonate with someone who identifies as, um, you know, with Otto Leopold who said that human, um, homo sapiens are not the conquerors of earth, but just, um, one a plain member and citizen of the biotic community. So I don't really strongly disagree with anything that's been said by the panelists tonight, um, including most of my own opening statement, except I will say that I am not persuaded that jobs program is a better term for what I was describing than jobs guarantee. I know several people picked on that throughout the discussion. You know, I'm fine with the terminology job program is probably more accurate. I guess um, what I was thinking was that we've already done so much to F up the environment that there would be absolutely no problem to guarantee a job for everyone in restoration, et cetera. Um, I do believe that the degrowth is necessary. This is my closing statement, so I won't um, rehash the reasons now. Um, if we want to maintain the norm that growth is good, for some reason, we like that rhetoric. I don't see why we need it. But here's my suggestion. How about we define growth as an increase in biodiversity? Restoring the 4 billion year legacy of natural tendencies towards increasing richness and diversity of the biological communities that humanity has unnaturally thwarted. Um, if there's, I don't, as I say, I, I like most of what's been said has been very enlightening to hear new perspectives and experiences. 
Um, if there's one thing I want to take issue with in my last statement, it's the framing of the entire discussion in terms strictly of resource conservation. It is important to conserve resources, I won't deny that. But I just noticed this line opening up the um, YouTube blurb. For our long-term survival and prosperity, we need to be careful about how we manage our resources. This strikes me as a rather disenchanted and dare I say capitalistic framing of the issue of environmental conservation. You know, how about we save the, the beauty and wonder and enchantment of our natural ecosystems, all of the other species that inhabit them for the sake of future generations to enjoy all of these intrinsically valuable riches and also for the sake of um, the other species themselves, all of these other sentient beings who share our planet. And also, you know, again, quoting Leopold, for the sake of the intrinsic value of the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. Okay, great. Uh, let's go to Dea, Derek, and then Diane. I'm glad I get to go after Kate. That's, I love the, the dissection of, um, of semantics and um, I do think it is really important um, for us having these conversations to think about what we really mean by these terms. Um, what, like when we say growth and say resources, like there's the very common, commonly understood versions of what those things are, but in talking about basic income, we are inherently talking about redefining um, a large system and so I think we need to um, to redefine some of these these terms that have um, uh, taken on additional or taken on meanings that I don't think they necessarily should have. Um, I agree Kate that like resources um, if we don't examine that term could just be thought to be things that are that are extracted um, for human benefit. Um, whereas, like Conrad was saying earlier, if we define resources as um, time spent with loved ones or like, um, like time spent in the garden creating a, um, positive value in the world, um, then, you know, we can we can look at growth differently too. Um, if we grow those resources and grow the, the use of those resources, then that is, um, I think, a, a positive way to look at growth. But we, but it, I do think it's important to to always question how those things are being used in these conversations. Um, I also really appreciate your bringing Leopold into into this conversation. I. Um, I'm also a fan of <laughs> intrinsic value of um, the rest of the Earth's inhabitants, and um, not not necessarily having this conversation be entirely human centric. Um, although I will say that um, as um, like according to Cronin, um, humans are. A very much a part of that whole system and not apart from it. Um, and that if something is actually good for humanity, then it will be good for 
the rest of the planet. We just have to start looking at it that way. Thanks, Dea. And we have a little bit of a reshuffling of the order. We're going to go to Conrad next, and then Derek, and then Diane. Go ahead, Conrad. Hey, yeah. Um, this dog's freaking out, so I have to take her to pee. But uh, I wanted to hear Kate and Dea, and uh, um, I don't have a whole lot to add. I, I think I wanted to float my idea about the energy dividend, but I love I love the conversation between between everybody. And I think this is a very important conversation for UBI people to have. And I think it's very important for UBI and environmentalist movements and conservationist movements to find ways to move forward together. This, yeah. is, this is Pepita. She's there a very she good girl sometimes. I'm not <laughs> bleeding, so she's been good. All right, uh, thanks, Conrad. Yeah, I think I think that's that that's very important because these are two very important things that that I think go well together too. Uh, let's go to Derek, Diane, and then Mike. Earlier, um, Mike asked the question. Well, he observed, you know, that there was there is a sort of tension um, when people talk about basic income. On on one hand, people saying that well, the, we can put this in and, and create more prosperity for people, and that that would seem to be at odds with the idea that the basic income is um, intended to allow us to sort of degrow or shrink the economy as if we need to, to protect the environment. And he asked, you know, can you reconcile these two things? And, you know, I would say maybe in a normal economy, um, you can't, maybe more consumption uses up more resources and that's sort of there, you have to balance these two competing things. But learning about basic income specifically that, that it is possible, and two, that we don't have one today and haven't had one since we began industrialization. Um, I've sort of come to, to feel that we don't live in a normal economy. And we actually, um, that, that gives us a, puts us in a unique position to, to save on a, a lot of resources that, that we don't need to be using um, while actually gaining more prosperity for people. So you can, it's kind of a have your cake and eat it too situation, or at least if, if this view that I'm um, talking about is correct. And so, um, you know, I guess the question we can ask is just that if, if we imagine an economy that actually really is working, I mean, on the question of, you know, do humans uh, versus nature, right? Like, where do we fall in that? I mean, if we imagine an economy that's actually working as efficiently as possible to make everyone more prosperous, to actually just deliver uh, better and happier and, 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 um, more abundant lives to, to people, and that was the, the point of the economy, would that economy be causing um, the horrible ecological problems that we see today? And my, my suspicion is that no. My suspicion is that a lot of the problems that we have stem are related to the fact that we, we, uh, we don't really have a prosperity first economy. We have a workaholic economy, and we sort of think that keeping people busy is sort of the most important thing, and we're terrified of the idea that people will be useless or that people or that robots will take our jobs. We're sort of terrified of just maybe slowing down and enjoying life. Um, so yeah, that's, that's uh, all I have to say for now. But this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, hearing everybody's perspectives and everybody's points. This was really, really good. Okay, thanks, Derek. Yeah, and, and in terms of reconciling the basic income, yeah, I think you can, you can reconcile those two things. You know, basic income can be used to get the economy to be as efficient as possible. And if it's as, as efficient as possible, then it's doing more of what it can with the minimum amount of resources. So it's compatible uh, kind of in that way. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I just wanted to close with uh, three points. First, I wanted to amplify something Conrad said, 
said in the chat in response to Alex, and that is that we could focus on basic income and then turn to carbon pricing down the road. But I think 50 years ago that would work, but we don't have time now. The window is rapidly closing, not just for um, global warming, but for all the things Kate was talking about initially, species extinction on a massive scale. So um, if anything, we have to put the environmental problem first and, and foremost um, and see how basic income can work synergistically with that. Um, secondly, um, on the question of degrowth, um, my tentative judgment is yes, we need something like that, but I wonder whether we should be foregrounding that as our, our slogan, so to speak. Um, Robert Poland, who's kind of in the green growth camp, made the observation that uh, if we wanted to contract the global world, uh, the global world product by 10% over 20 years, which would be about four times the contraction of the economic crisis in 2007 to 2009, um, that would by itself reduce carbon emissions by exactly 10% just a small fraction of what needs to be done. So degrowth by itself uh, isn't gonna do very much unless we have massive investments in alternative energy and we motivate the shift from carbon fuels to renewables. Um, so I think that's what ought to be put in the foreground. And if in the process of doing that, we are also um, in effect degrowing the economy um, so be it. Um, and um, the third thing I just wanted to pick up on um, Derek's remark that we don't live in a normal economy. We live in an economy that's been around and, motive and premised on growth for at most about 300 years. And in fact, the idea that we have to keep growing GDP, that's only a few decades old, that idea. Um, so in closing, I just wanted to make a pitch for um, including in our dialogues um, a number of other disciplines that tend to be a little bit more on the margins when we talk about economics and policy. And that is philosophy, ethics, literature, which are in incredibly important for imagining what the good life can be like. Um, and history of philosophy is relevant here too. I happen to be in the middle of teaching a history of ancient philosophy course. And I think Aristotle still has remarkable relevance, both for his conception of what it is to live well and for his idea of a, um, an economy that is essentially what John Stuart Mill called a steady state economy. Mill, I mean, Aristotle thought uh, if you desire wealth beyond what you need to live the good life, you're a kind of neurotic. You're more obsessed with survival than you are with the good life. You're more obsessed with wealth accumulation than you are with using your wealth to live a life in accordance with virtue. So to get back to those ancient values, we have to study them. We need to bring them into the popular discourse. Um, and lastly, uh, just spinning off of that, um, whether we can have an economy that is not growing, um, it raises the question whether that's compatible 
with capitalism because as I've always understood capitalist profit is premised on continual economic growth. Um, so I'll just close with that question. It's a question for me that I really haven't answered. I've heard some people say, you can have a steady state economy that's still capitalist, um, but there are lots of critics who say, no, growth, growth is kind of built into the system. So anyway, those, those are my cl closing comments. It's been a great conversation and I really enjoyed talking to everybody and hearing what others have to say. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, and I'm certainly in the camp that you can have a steady state economy or steady size economy that's compatible with capitalism. In the final thoughts, uh, we got mixed up in the order and I accidentally dropped Diane. So Diane benefits from my mistake by getting the final word. Go ahead, Diane. All right, well, that's too much pressure because I don't have anything brilliant to say. But, you know, one, just, just one thing I wanna kind of throw in because I had meant to say it um, earlier is I did read, um, I read uh, something called um, a study on nature sustainability. Um, it had two authors, uh, Sterner and Barbier, and um, it talked about um, their recommendation was a universal basic income plus what they called a half earth policy, which is basically like a substantive portion of the earth should be allowed to like rewild, which Kate was talking about and probably knows a lot more about it. But, you know, a lot of that is very, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of this, I think, um, what was occurring to me when everyone was talking about how urgent this is, is that it's not going to get done without um, social messaging that, that rallies large portions of the, the community around the cause and helps educate everyone toward that end. So like when you're, you know, fighting when you're fighting an enemy in World War One or World War Two, like you had social messaging about why you, you know, should conserve certain resources, right? Um, you know, the same thing with education, different educational ends, you have them. I think that that the United States in particular, perhaps it is propaganda as Richard's saying, but I think it's propaganda in a very pro positive informed um you know sort of definition of it right which is it's not necessarily negative to influence people toward a goal that everyone knows is essential right so you know i think that we're not going to get there without you know really thoughtful and intensive uh messaging about why we need to proceed down a certain path. And um, because we have to do these things, we have to, you know, at an individual level and a societal level, we, you know, look, we've, we've allowed, and it's not like there's not propaganda now, there's plenty of propaganda now and has been for decades toward overwork, toward you know a false definition of like productivity toward you know moving everything from the home economy to the fast food economy and creating all of this waste that was all we were all engineered to do all of this and we all you know lapped it up right and now we have to change the messaging so that we can save ourselves so i think that 
you know, one thing that we have to put into the mix here is that there has to be messaging and I'm not sure, you know, logistically how the messaging will be done, but of course, I think it's going to have a lot to do with government. It may, I don't think that having, you know, pockets of, you know, pockets of people, small pockets of people just, you know, doing it through their own like self-awareness and stuff is going to be enough. So I just want to throw that in. Thanks, Diane. And in terms of Mike made a comment that the window is rapidly closing on climate change. And I think that's super important for us to keep aware of, but it's also useful to think about what's mechanically possible. So we can kind of in an abstract sense ask, is basic income compatible with the goal of resource conservation? And I think most people here would say yes. And I would say that basic income fixes this thing that's broken and wasteful of resources, namely the way we get people their money. And once it's in place, it makes it a lot easier to figure out what other things we can do to conserve. So I would say that it's very much part of the picture and the order in which we do things and the speed at which we do things are critically important, but I have maybe less to say about that. So this was a great discussion, you guys. Thanks for coming on. Next week's topic is going to be labor demand. So we often talk about how basic income affects labor supply, i.e. people's willingness to work. But how does it interact with the willingness of employers or the desire of employers to hire people to do work? So that's what next week's discussion is going to be about.